1: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. To those that uh, tune in line, I apologize about the uh, late airing. We're about a day late and uh, just wasn't feeling great after the uh, after the conference. You can feel free to join us in our interactive chat room, irc.freenode.net, pound, Ask Noah Show. We'd love to have you there. Fedora Core 30 has come out this week, and Fedora I have used Fedora every version since Fedora Core 1. In fact, I used what would have been Fedora, which was the last version of the Red Hat desktop Linux before they split into Fedora Core and RHEL. And the reason is, Red or er, Fedora has been used as a long time as kind of a testing bed for Red Hat or at least it used to be. And there was a point when you could install Fedora and see what was going to be coming down the pipe in, in uh, Red Hat. Now that's no longer the case. They are two very different projects at this point, but Red Hat is still, or Fedora rather, is still a really good great playing ground, I think, for Red Hat. So people who administrate Red Hat systems makes a lot of sense to use on your desktop environment Fedora in fact you'll notice a lot of the people that work for Red Hat in fact actually run Fedora on their laptops either their work laptops or their personal computers I would be willing to put more people on Fedora when they came and asked for recommendations the reason that I don't really comes down to the support cycle we're gonna talk a little bit later in the episode about snaps and uh, the packaging that they provide. And one of the things that that enables is for you to use pretty much any flavor, any distribution you want and still have access to the same software packages. One of the reasons that people go on Arch or go on Ubuntu is because of the software packages that are available for those operating systems. I remember one of the very first software packages that I found myself at a loss for back when I was using Fedora full-time was GNS3. And at that time, GNS3 was available for Ubuntu, was not available for, to, for Fedora. And going through my Cisco certification at the time, I found myself to be at a great disadvantage that I wasn't able to install software to emulate routers and switches and be able to emulate an environment and play around with it. When software manufacturers go to make Software, Fedora probably isn't at the front of their list. And that's one of the reasons I think that keeps Fedora from gaining more desktop traction than it has. And uh, if we could, if, if something ever changed with that support cycle, I think there would be a lot of organizations that would look and say, well, Red Hat is a really established company in the server sphere. Their desktop environment or their desktop operating system that's available for free if it was designed for enterprise and had a substantial support cycle to it, we'd run that in enterprise. But I can't see any business uh, of any size really dealing with a six month support cycle. Nevertheless, the Fedora core 30 is fantastic. I was able to upgrade a 29 machine to a 30 machine and I have no idea how long that machine has been upgrading, but suffice to say it has been a lot. Certainly since 16 or 17, maybe even a little earlier than that. Fedora core 30 ships with GCC 9.0. It has uh, some performance increases across all of the applications. They also include they're calling the flicker free boot process which hides the grub loader kernel selection menu and uh, relies on some creative theming to incorporate a boot splash image from your hardware Fedora 30 is shipping with 3.32 and listen I love gnome I if I had to pick a desktop environment and my choices were between you know Windows Mac OS or some Linux distribution with gnome it would I'd choose gnome hands down vanilla gnome is difficult to say the least. Um, In the process of trying to reboot GNOME 3, they have had to make some compromises and uh, they are going for a minimal desktop uh, presentation, I guess is the best way to put it, right? When you actually get into GNOME, you have a fairly useless wallpaper because nothing's actually happening on the desktop, so it's essentially a big picture frame if you don't have dash to dock installed, then your primary interface for starting apps disappears, which is astonishingly familiar to those that maybe had the Ubuntu menu bar that vanished. And I don't know what it is. I guess for me, it's just very difficult for me to convince my brain to send my cursor somewhere where I'm not where I don't immediately see what I'm aiming for. And that's what has always kind of turned me off about the default implementation of the GNOME launcher. We still don't have standardized app indicators, which is frustrating. And I, you know, having used KDE Plasma, I feel like if I'm being honest, my bar has gone up just a little bit because everything just works in KDE and it drives me nuts. Uh, I don't have anything to complain about. And and I'm I'm a pretty Walmart Linux user to begin with, so I don't always notice the little things. I can pretty much make anything work. But going from KDE, where every application that is running, I can choose to anyway have it running at the bottom. I can just look down and see, hey, there's all the there's all the applications that are running. And then to go back to GNOME and live on it for a couple of days, and all of a sudden, my indicators are nowhere to be found. Of course, this is true in any desktop distribution that is using GNOME as a default desktop. But you wind up using all these hacks and extensions to try to recreate what the user wants. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why it is we as a desktop Linux community can't just look up and say, you know what? Uh, We would like to know when things like Dropbox and C-File and Telegram are running and we'd like to have those icons available to us. Even things like the connection interface, right? To Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. All of these things require one submenu after another. Why can't I just click on the Wi-Fi icon and select the Wi-Fi network I want to connect to? And this is when I, I, you know, I just really wasn't, part of it is I just want to sit down and use the computer. And the more I use other desktop operating systems, the more challenging uh, and the less patience I have for some of these lack of of functionality and lack lack of features. Battery percentage, still not there. Uh, Again, you can get it with with an extension, but by default, it's not there. And of course, this whole thing is running on a single thread. And so... Well, if you're running this on Wayland it becomes a huge problem because when that process crashes and it does crash you lose all of your work and then you get to start all over again Fedora 30 brings UEFI ARM for seven, or for ARM uh, v7 and this I think is a really positive move the the momentum for ARM I don't think has ever been stronger because we're seeing these processors about double in power every year they go up by about 200 percent and that enables all sorts of crazy innovations to exist and i've seen all sorts of everything from commercial embedded devices to wall-mounted servers to vehicle in vehicle entertainment systems all of these things exist because of the ever-growing power of the arm infrastructure and Red Hat has made a point in their RHEL 8 release that they are going to start focusing and working to support more ARM devices. And I think the reason that they are looking and focusing on ARM is because we all kind of agree this is where the future of competition to Intel is going to be. For a long time, and I, I, I understand that I'm treading on people's attention because we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Intel's biggest competition has been Intel. And as we've watched AMD start to challenge the NVIDIA people in the video card space, I think you're going to start to see more and more ARM architecture challenging Intel. And there are a lot of people, myself included, that if I could buy an ARM laptop tomorrow that was built very, very well, I don't know, like the Pinebook Pro, I'd be all over that. And I would be talking customers and clients into that except for one thing we've got to be able to provide them with some support right and what I've noticed is that Red Hat has picked up on that and they've looked over and said you know what these enterprise customers that want to run an arm infrastructure we better start supporting it and so you're seeing a huge push not only with rel8 but with the Fedora team to try to gather gain some support and push it out for arm devices Fedora Core uh, 30 ships with Linux kernel 5.0.9, Mesa 19.0.2, Python 3.7.3, and GCC 9.0.1. Overall, a solid release. Um, nothing that, I, you know, stands out. Oh, my gosh, this is so different than anything else that Fedora's ever released. Nothing like that. But it's a solid iteration on a solid product. And um, I find myself answering the question. I always ask other people when they advocate for distribution who is this for who is your target audience and i got asked this que- that question this week about fedora and i had to think about it a little bit because for a long time i was a fedora core user kind of out of default well i'm a Hat sys admin so i guess fedora is the operating system that i install on my laptop and then after a while i needed to start supporting people that were on ubuntu so that became the operating system that i started to support and uh by default, then run on my laptop. And I've been running Ubuntu with KDE for so long now that, as my primary operating system, that quite honestly, it's difficult for me to get back into the slide of things with, with GNOME. But I think the target for Fedora Core are those that are potentially interested in an in alternative to Arch. They want it faster moving than Ubuntu but they want some sort of backing behind it because the, the issue that you run into with arch and I ran arch for a number of years, four or five years. But the issue that I kept running into is the direction is just the natural direction of the community. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that you're subjected to the whims and interests of the community. You know, uh, That is to say when a software new version of a piece of software comes out and it conflicts with something, you're essentially waiting on that person to jump in there and, and fix it right and what i've seen from using enterprise supported distributions i guess i'll call them companies like canonical they pay people to sit around i shouldn't say sit around that casts a bad light but they pay people to actively work and investigate where potential problems are going to crop up contact those software manufacturers and say hey we notice that you have a problem that you want to work on linux we also want your product to work on linux here's how we would go about fixing that issue for you do you need any help you want us to fly you out to a place where, where we can have our developers work with your developers and our people talk to your people. We'll get something shipped. They're willing to do that. I see a lot of ch- the chat room is talking about Pop! OS. For all of the crap I have given Pop! OS, and I've admitted numerous times it's not the operating system for me. One thing you have to give those guys, they know how to deliver a product to their customer and have their customer's best interest in mind, right? And there are certain functions and certain, there's cer- certain functionality that exists in pop OS that doesn't exist in other distributions. What comes to mind is the recovery partition. And the fact that they have built a tool into Linux that allows users to say, hey, I wanna, I wanna start over, I wanna reset my whole computer, but I wanna keep all of my data. And that's a, that's a possibility now. Technically, it's always been possible. You can do that on any distribution. But Pop! OS has made it easy for the user to do, and so it gives you more of that Mac-like experience. And the fact that System76 is maintaining Pop! OS and System76 is manufacturing the computer, well, that, again, kind of alludes to that Apple-like experience. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Who is Fedora for? I think Fedora's for the people that want to play, that have a systems admin background and are deeply tied to the Red Hat infrastructure, but kind of want to play with the newest and greatest. I think that's who the, the Fedora audience is. I don't see a lot of people in large enterprise running Fedora on the desktop, not because I think it's a bad product, I just don't think it's what it's intended for. Now, interestingly enough, that is exactly what Ubuntu is designed for and that is what we're seeing. I have an article from ZDNet called Mark Shuttleworth sees increased demand for enterprise Ubuntu Linux desktop. From the article, quote, We have seen companies signing up for Linux desktop support because they want to have fleets of Ubuntu desktops for their artificial intelligence engineers. Shuttleworth said, GNOME kind of saved my bacon, to be honest. Unity was causing a lot of distractions and it was controversial, even though it was good, so we decided to retire it. We needed a desktop and that was GNOME. There's so much packed into that statement from Mark. First things first, I'm not surprised at all that we are seeing more enterprise customers switch over to Ubuntu and look for Ubuntu support. In fact, notice this trend. Every time a new area of technology pops up, it almost always defaults to Linux. Somebody's writing new code, somebody's trying a new industry. I understand that we have established practices. You've got established practices for, you know, document editing and presentation giving and graphic arts and all of those. And that may change with time, it may not, I don't know. But when you have a new industry that pops up, artificial intelligence, drones, robotics, all of those new technologies are almost always being built on Linux. And I think the reason for that is because when you start from ground zero and you've got to build something, you tend to build it with Linux. And companies like Amazon and eBay and Google have been switching to Linux on the desktop and they've been pretty happy with it. I've had an opportunity to talk with a lot of those folks and all of them say they're pretty pleased with the end results. And I start to think, well, what does that mean for us normal Linux people? It's normal people that just kinda wanna run Linux on the desktop. We just kinda wanna play around. And what I'm left with is as bigger companies test the water and ensure this works, it puts pressure on other companies to provide support to Linux. I'll give you a perfect example of this. I was just having a discussion with a good friend of mine about video conferencing. And of course, my buddy runs all of his machines on Linux. And so his natural question was, what video conferencing software do you recommend? Understand that it has to work flawlessly on Linux. And my answer to him was, well, I'd check out BlueJeans. Now, is it open source. Not, not exactly, but. They're always going to provide video conferencing on Linux. Why? Because Red Hat is one of their largest customers. And Red Hat uses BlueJeans and so it's a very robust very reliable video conferencing service and the reason that support for Linux is there is because there's a lot of money in that to support a Linux line so imagine this imagine take the most anti Linux program you can think of I don't know what it is we'll call it XYZ and they have no interest whatsoever in supporting Linux but if Amazon and eBay and Google and Red Hat and all these other companies decide to switch over to Linux on their desktop they're going to receive pressure that says, hey, you know, we got to support these guys because they need a way to to run our software. And I think that will trickle down and provide more resources for us, you know, the, the, the beach bums, as it were. Canonical getting people on Ubuntu means companies like Amazon are going to have to figure out how to run their software. And that could be video editing. It could be com- desktop conferencing. It could be photo editing. All of that stuff has to work because those big companies are running on 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 le, the desktop on Linux, so that was pleasant to see, and I think it's a nice way for us to see a lot of these new releases. I'm also glad because this this article from or the comment from Mark Shuttleworth right it says GNOME kind of saved my bacon. What he's what he's saying there is that people Canonical were distracted. They were distracted on trying to build a desktop environment. And Mark looked over and said, you know what? We are running an operating system, an open source operating system, and we're not utilizing best practices for open source. Best practices for open source say that there is a whole group of people out there that have made a fantastic desktop environment, even if Noah does rag on it just a little bit, but it works well enough and Red Hat is using it. And maybe we should stop dividing our resources and spend our resources on trying to make the best Ubuntu base that we can, make some improvements to GNOME where we need to, and let it ride. And it sounds like that decision is paying off for them. Now, two years into it, at the time that Canonical announced that they were switching to the GNOME desktop, I was elated because I thought, this is absolutely fantastic. We've got Red Hat that is already shipping GNOME. And people like it well enough. I at the time I was using Arch with GNOME and I liked it well enough. And I thought if there is one desktop to switch to, this is it. Two years hindsight, there are some serious issues with GNOME. Do I think KDE might have been a better choice? Possibly. Even something like XFC or Mate might have been a better choice, albeit a step backwards, possibly. But if Canonical can pull this off and fix some of the issues, underlying issues that exist in GNOME, namely the single-threading issue that caused the desktop to crash, understand that every other distribution, which is a lot of them, that ship GNOME by default, are going to benefit as well. So, regardless of what the what the correct decision was for the 18.04 LTS, going forward, I think everybody in Linux, anybody in desktop Linux, anyway, wins. And I thought that was really, uh, it was a a kind, honest gesture from Mark to signal all of the hard work that GNOME has done. Because remember, up until recently, GNOME has been kind of forging their own trail. And Canonical's been out on Unity. And uh, of course, the community has tried to pick that up in the aftermath. And it's interesting to watch the shift and the focus and the opinions of Unity. As Canonical has it, Nobody likes it, and everybody fights against it, and why are they doing their own desktop environment, and why don't they just use GNOME? Now, all of a sudden, they switch, and everybody goes, ah, why'd you do that? We loved Unity. That was my favorite desktop. It's not here. I still, to this day, say there was there is nothing that has better multi-monitor support than than uh, Canonical's Unity desktop did. Steve G. in the chat room says, "Blue Jeans is actually pretty good video conferencing. Yeah, I've used it a couple times with some Red Hat folks. It's worked great. In fact, our... Um, local Linux user group, which is meeting, by the way, this Friday at, uh, six, uh, I believe it's 6 PM at the university of North Dakota in gamble hall. So if you're in the area or from around the area and are are willing to drive to the area, uh, come hang out with us. We're going to talk about some Linux. We'll have a couple projects to do from time to time. We'll have a presentation. And when those presentations are done by red hat people, guess what? They use blue jeans and it works pretty well. I stand, by, I stand by all of the things I said before about GNOME, uh, you know, because remember, I, I still actually to this day use GNOME on a daily basis. A lot of clients have it because they're using the latest version of Ubuntu. Uh, we roll it out for clients. At the end of the day, it's the biggest desktop environment on Linux. So I'm glad to see that all of these companies now are shipping it by default, and hopefully we will get some improvement as time goes on. We have a new phone app that I, this is, this is kind of exciting. So, on our website, one of the things that has been on my mind for a while is that people who want to interact with the show but can't because they either live in a different country or there's something prohibiting them from joining over the phone. And the phone is kind of an intimidating thing, right? Because you dial the wrong phone number and all of a sudden you wind up with a huge phone bill. And we've tried to set that off as far as we possibly could because. Uh, Well, essentially, uh, we have a toll-free number, that's about as far as we can go. Everything else is left to the telco. And so, of course, there's other ways you can join us. You're welcome to join us in our interactive Mumble room, but not everybody has the time or effort to set that up. And especially if you're just getting started with Linux, maybe you don't even have access to Mumble, and you don't even know what Mumble is. So we've created a new widget, and our new phone widget can be found at asknoahshow.com. You go into the bottom right-hand corner, and you click on it. And it initiates. It's really cool, you guys. It initiates a WebRTC session right into our phone system here at the studio. So that's pretty cool. So you click on the button, and uh, the only thing we ask is use a headset, a little USB headset, or if you got a like a Bluetooth headset or something. But this will be really, I think, exciting for the people that want to participate in the show, and can't because of some sort of technological barrier. If you have a laptop, you have the internet, and you've got some way to make a phone call that won't have feedback, then you're more than willing to, or more than able to do that. Now Kabavik in the chat room asks if I don't like interacting through you with you through IRC and I absolutely do. The issue is I get crap on social media from people saying, why don't you talk to people on the phone? You, your, your show is about phone calls and you don't take phone calls. I The phone calls will go to the front of the line. So if you give if when people call in very, 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 very rarely do we, uh, do we not take phone calls on the air? If we have a guest, and uh, I have, I have a, a set amount of time that I told I would give that guess, then yes. Um, but other than that, if you call in phone calls, go to the front of the line. Naylor asks in the chat room, is the button live now? It absolutely is. You can click on it anytime you'd like. we will go now to the Linux Newswire newsroom with Eric the IT Guy. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this
2: is the Weekly Roundup with Eric the IT Guy.
0: Hey Noah, happy to be with you again, and here are your Linux and open source headlines. Linux has seen continued rapid growth in the gaming community. One of the popular titles has been Total War, Warhammer 2. This long-standing staple is a strategy and fantasy-based game by Feral Interactive. It includes turn-based civilization management and real-time battles involving thousands of troops and monsters. In the coming weeks, a new expansion will be released, The Prophet and the Warlock. Soon after its availability for Windows, it will also be available on Linux. Steam and Feral Interactive continue to champion bringing gaming to the Linux desktop. Go vote with your wallet and purchase The Prophet and the Warlock DLC today. Valve has officially announced the upcoming Index, a VR headset. Set to release on or around June 15th, it was initially thought to be a prank as Valve had been moving away from selling hardware altogether. However, it turned out to be a publishing error. The Index hardware will include the headset, a base station, and hand controllers, affectionately referred to as Knuckles, sold independently or as a bundle. The big news out of the creators of Steam is the headset will be released with day one Linux support. Steam promises to release more details in the coming weeks. Fedora 30 has been released. After six months of development, Workstation, Server, and Silverblue are now readily available. Included in the new release is GNOME 3.32, which includes a refreshed icon set, new applications panel for fine-tuned control of permissions, and many performance improvements and bug fixes. Fedora Server 30 also releases a new feature called Linux Systems Roles. These are a, quote, collection of roles and modules executed by Ansible to assist Linux admins in the configuration of common gnu linux subsystems, end quote. Fedora 30 also sees the continued development of Fedora Spins Plasma, XFCE, LXQt, Mate, and more. Visit FedoraProject.org for all of the juicy details. Occasionally here at Linux Newswire, we like to highlight a project or application that is providing great value to the community. Many Linux administrators for desktop or server have frequently made the mistake of running DD to the wrong partition. DD is a command line tool to write ISO images to a flash drive, among other tasks. Thus, it can be very dangerous without paying very close attention. Enter KIND, or KINDDD. This is a graphical wrapper for the DD command. It is a free and open source tool written in Qt Quick. It provides a modern, simple, and safe graphical interface to create new bootable devices without having to touch the command line. While currently under heavy development, it is available today in the Arch AUR as or, or as a downloadable executable from GitHub. To get more Linux and open source news without the opinions or BS, head on over to linuxnewswire.com and subscribe today. But for now, Noah, back to you
1: thanks Eric and what he's referring to is um, we are going to start releasing Linux Newswire as a daily show here up and coming so you'll get it I don't think it's gonna be every day I think we're gonna try and do it Monday Wednesday and Friday but you'll be able to program your smart device to get the latest of Linux news and I guess the idea behind it is this I always wished when I was waking up and getting ready for the morning that as part of my news gathering Not only do I wanna hear about political events and local events and stuff like that, I'd really like to hear what's going on in the Linux world because I work in the Linux world and I work as a Linux professional, and so that kind of stuff is relevant to me. And we're gonna get to a story here later in the hour where uh, we're, we're talking about Docker Hub being compromised. Now how would you like it if your job was working with Docker and you didn't know that Docker was compromised that morning because you hadn't had a chance to browse the news on your computer and your drive to work obviously doesn't carry it on the radio, unless of course you're listening to KEQQ80.3 and you listen to the Ask Noah show, right? Chris, West Virginia, first to join us on our web interface. How are you?
2: Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Are you driving home?
2: No, I'm sitting at my desk.
1: Oh, okay. There's just a little background noise. No-, no, it's all right. There's a little background noise at first, but it's gone now. How are you doing?
3: Oh, I'm not too bad. I just wanted to be the first to use the web phase live.
1: Okay, so you have nothing of value to add to the show. What? What? Uh, what? What great well, things? Uh, Good. I'm sure you've got something.
3: Yeah, I I kind of wanted to know if you've got any uh,
1: anything that you if I missed it because I've been in and out with kids and stuff. Uh, if you've got anything from Linux Best Northwest that you've uh, recorded and are going to be publishing, is there any? Yeah, good content. Yeah, we did. We grabbed a couple uh, bits of audio I'm not sure if many of them are gonna make it into the show or not Um, You know the really a lot of those conferences I go to mostly to uh, to just kind of interact with other people But um, I do we do have an interview coming up here at the latter half of the hour I was reminded about at Linux Fest Northwest. It's actually from Ellen Pope, but we recorded it back at scale I don't know if that counts or not Oh, I think we lost him. 855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. You're on Ask NOAH. Hello.
0: Hey, NOAH. A uh, quick question for you. Just because I'm curious. Maybe other people would be curious for the show, but just because I'm curious, have you ever worked as a... as like bug? Have you ever worked doing bug bounty catches? Like, have you ever done that for maybe a job? I don't know. <laughs> I was having a short conversation with my mom and I found, I found a couple of bugs in the OpenBSD port system, I think, otherwise just documentation that's written horribly and misses like a whole aspect of description, but yeah she mentioned could you make money off of this and i was like yeah i guess i could work on bug bounty stuff
1: yeah you probably could I, well here's what i would tell you as far as bug bounties go as far as have i ever done it no i've never dr- directly participated in a bug bounty either by posting a bug or by getting paid to work on a bug because god knows it would be a disaster if i ever tried to code anything but here's what i have done there are numerous times we have worked with a project. And found a shortcoming in the project and really not so much fixed a bug, but wanted an additional feature that wasn't there. And I've absolutely hired a developer to fix a problem. And I'll give you the first example. first time I ever did this was back when we were trying to get all of the machines over at JB1 switched over to Linux. And one of the shortcomings, as I saw it, of OBS was that you weren't able to stream to multiple providers simultaneously. Now that was a feature that was built into the previous piece of crap software that we were using, and I wanted to see it implemented in OBS. Reached out to the OBS people, and they said, yeah, the backend stuff is all there, we just haven't exposed it in the user interface. So we hired a developer and actually implemented that feature in the user interface. I'm not sure why those changes never got actually accepted into the tree, but ultimately we decided we didn't want to maintain a port of OBS, and so we just essentially, really what we did was we built a backend to deal with the ingesting of a single stream and then sending out to other providers, which is what we've been using ever since. But I, and then after that, I, we hired, obviously most of, you know, Simon Quigley, one of the key functions he provides for us at all speed technologies is he acts as a developer and he's very good at it. And a lot of people don't like the fact that he's very good at it because he's not as old as some other people are, but they, do uh, he does a very good job. And so we've had the opportunity to look out and say, Hey, here's a project that we need the software done or we need the software modified. Can you, can you deal with that? Kabavik in the chat room asks, did you ever have a developer centric show? I thought I remembered you talking about wanting to do one a while back. Um, I, I thought about doing a system administration show. I've never really thought about doing a, uh, a developer show because I'm not a developer and I'm not very good at it. Uh, I know enough Python to be dangerous and I've taken enough courses, uh, to be a risk, but past that, I I really don't know a lot about software development. Mozilla is dropping the IRC system as their main form of communication. Now there are a number of people that are unhappy because they are saying they are suffering from abuse from online people. Um, essentially what Mozilla is saying is that they need a new product. It has to be a product by another company or organization ideally it would be self-hosted or a pay for service it needs to be accessible it needs to be a product not just a protocol and it must be proven with modern service the big thing here is they want to support authentication because mozilla community participation guidelines will be enforced here's quite honestly where we fall down on on this you can't just Put your head down because you're upset that people said some mean things in the IRC chat room. OK, IRC is just a protocol. You have a people problem. If you have people bullying other people online, you don't have a technology problem. Now, there are plenty of shortcomings for with IRC. And if we want to address those shortcomings, we're free to do that. But that's not where this problem is. There are methods in Telegram and in Slack to kick and ban people. But you know what we have in IRC? We got methods to kick and ban people right like that does exist authentication does exist in irc what you need is not a new participation platform mozilla what you need is a reqai somebody to get in there and kick some butt that said i kind of understand what they're going through as far as trying to pick a communication platform because we're honestly we're struggling with that at all speed technologies uh, internally we are trying to find the right communication platform for us now we've tried slack we've been on it for a while it's not great Aside from the fact that it's you can't self-host it and it's not open source, it's actually a pretty. Ter- I find it to be a pretty terrible experience. The Linux app is an Electron app. All of the ads or the extensions or add-ons that you put, they work for a little bit, and then all of a sudden the developer decides they want a monthly fee for them. It seems like everything is going to a seven dollar a month monthly fee. I'm just not a fan of it. We tried Mattermost. We've tried Rocket Chat. They're okay. At least they're open source and self-hosted but I don't think they're fantastic. So I'm looking for another platform and Mozilla is too. If you have a suggestion, would you please let us know at live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to hear what is a really solid team communication platform. Again, ideally for me anyway, it would be self-hosted open source. Um, It'd be nice if there was an integration with both voice chat and regular text chat. Mobile app is a must because a lot of us are doing it on the on mobile devices. But you can help alt-speed technologies and you could help Mozilla, it sounds like, because they're, we're both looking for one. I thought it was pretty interesting um, just that Mozilla is here. I also find it interesting that they're so eager to get off of IRC because for all of IRC's shortcomings, the reality is it's still the go-to standard for communication in the open source world, right? That's what Red Hat and Fedora are doing. That's what you know, Ubuntu and Canonical are doing. Pretty much any open source project has an IRC channel if you want to have direct chat and i we've been using it for years, and I, I really don't see much of a problem with it because we do have moderation methods built in. I'm not sure why those aren't being utilized to their fullest extent. As mentioned earlier in the program, i was I had an opportunity to catch up with Alan Pope. Now, Alan is a fantastic guy, good friend of mine, and he works with Snapcraft and he did a really awesome, innovative workshop at linux fest northwest we actually set up a bunch of computers and walk people through snapcraft and we had a chance to catch up with them back at scale and talk a little bit about what snaps are what snapcraft is and what the larger ramifications are because it might not just apply to linux there may be a future where snaps apply to windows and mac os as well here's that audio scale 2019 and i ran into my friend alan pope now i have to i I think i owe you an on-air apology because this is the first time in three years two years three years that i've had you on the ask noah show so that is a huge flub on my part and i apologize no worries no worries well this might change your opinion we had martin on within the first three weeks
2: (laughs) okay fine
1: (laughs) so uh where did that technology come from talk to me about clicks where it where it started
2: So, actually, you can go back even further than that. With the Ubuntu desktop, we've been shipping software to users for a very long time, since 2004, Mm -hmm. and we noticed that it was difficult for users to get new and interesting software, Mm -hmm. and it was difficult for developers to get their software in the hands of new users. Mm -hmm. Um, When the phone came along, uh, we realized that the phone platform with its constrained resources and limited network capability and battery life meant that it wasn't really great experience for having Debs on the phone. So we developed a new packaging system called Click Packages, which are self-contained packages of software um, which would update over the air easily on a mobile device. Now, since we uh, deprioritized the phone platform uh, and started working more on other projects, that's when Qlik evolved into Snap, basically. So there is a a heritage of everything we've learned over the many years of having Ubuntu and software packages on Ubuntu, and then the various iterations of the phone project. A lot of that has fed into what Snaps have become today.
1: Anytime we start talking about container technologies of any sort, we see an increased level of security, and that's of course true with Snaps and Clicks and all of those kinds of things. That is being implemented with something called AppArmor.
2: What is (laughs) AppArmor? Oh gosh, uh, this uh, kernel security mechanisms that are built into the Linux kernel uh, not just AppArmor but also groups and seccomp are tools that allow us to constrain what the application in a snap can see, it has a, a kind of filtered view of the world, it can't see outside the box we give it, it's not so much containerized in the way you would think with Docker or Lexi, it's a lot more lightweight than that, um, but it means that we can uh, deploy applications where the application can't reach out and get your SSH keys or go and read your your GPG key or, or reach into other applications data areas. So it gives some users some confidence that one application isn't going to mess with another application data or try and reach into places it shouldn't get to or access devices it shouldn't like the camera for example. You wouldn't want maybe an address book application, being able to just randomly turn on the camera and take your photo. And so interfaces that we've uh, enabled via those security mechanisms like AppArmor, uh, enable us to block access to devices. So we can block access to the microphone, block access to the camera, so users can be confident that Applications aren't doing nefarious things.
1: So this is one of those things. If it doesn't, if it if it's a need to know access, if you don't have to have access to something, then we won't necessarily give that to you. And I, that's I, that's a really interesting, uh, that's a really interesting prospect. It also, you talked about one application not uh, essentially messing with another one. Uh, talk to me about the ability to separate libraries out and have multiple versions running at the same
2: time. So one of the features of snaps is that you you publish a snap with all the dependent libraries that it needs to run. So, and the reason why we do that is you can't know what libraries are installed on the host where the snap will be installed. And because snaps are cross Linux distribution compatible, uh, we can't know for sure if you have all the necessary libraries on your Debian system or your Fedora system or your openSUSE system. And so we uh, bundle libraries into the snap Uh, so that the app can function properly. What that means is you might have two entirely separate snaps with different versions of the exact same library on your host. And because they've got their own view of the world, one snap sees one version of the library and another snap sees another version of the library. So they're kept separate, they have their own set of executables, their own library paths, and they're all isolated from each other.
1: That's that's awesome, and I think it's I think what you're doing with snaps are very cool, and I think it actually even goes outside of Linux, doesn't it? Because you say it's cross Linux, uh, it's it's essentially agnostic across Linux platforms. But really, the ultimate goal is to be agnostic across all platforms, macOS, Windows. That could be a real future, right?
2: Certainly could be. It'd be an interesting challenge to overcome having a single unified package manager across everything. Uh, It's not something we're targeting at the moment. We want to get the best possible use case on all Linux distributions. We're not quite there yet. We know there are some rough edges where under certain circumstances a snap might not look right or might not behave right on certain places and those are bugs we need to fix and I think we need to fix those before we go leaping too hard towards unknown platforms like BSD, for example, or Mac OS or Windows, but there, there would be interesting places for us to have snaps in the future.
1: That's that's awesome to hear that that the priority is Linux, because I think there's a lot of companies that that fail to hit that mark where they prioritize Linux, and I think that's awesome that that's what you guys are doing, and the snaps really solve probably what I would argue is the oldest problem on Linux, which is we just don't have any sort of standard software distribution mechanism,
2: now we do with snaps. Right. And- i give you an interesting uh, story. We've got the capability to build snaps, uh, not just with our Snapcraft tool, but some other developer tools like Electron Builder, for example. Electron is very popular, whether you like it or not. It's a very popular platform for people to develop applications. And many people develop those applications for Windows and Mac and don't really realize that they could very easily build for Linux as well. And because Electron Builder has the capability out of the box to just build a snap, then they discover, actually, it's very easy for me to reach a huge audience of Linux users by just uploading this Snap that was already built into the Snap Store, and you've got another avenue for reaching more users that you wouldn't normally reach.
1: People should be aware too. Canonical, it's not just a passive effort. Canonical actively reaches out to these people, taps them on the shoulders, says, hey, by the way, I saw that you released that program uh, for messaging and video conferencing on that platform. And hey, did you know because it's an Electron app that you could just run this piece of tool and you would be able to release that on Linux. And so you're actively pulling people into the Linux ecosystem.
2: Yeah, you basically described my job. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for no what worries. you do. I, I really appreciate it sincerely what you do for Linux and what you have, your commitment, and what Canonical is doing to bring packaging to Linux.
2: We appreciate you. We'll get you back on the program soon. No worries. It's great. It's been lovely to chat to you. Thanks.
1: Again, phone lines are open 855 450 NOAA. That's 1 855 450 6624. Our project spotlight this week is. NEdit-NG. It's a QT5 port of NEdit using Modern C. Now the goal of this project is for Nedit NG to be as much of a drop-in replacement for NEdit as reasonable. Now you might be asking, what is NEdit? NEdit is the Nirvana Text Editor. It's a text editor that and source code editor for the X Windows system. It has an interface that is similar to uh text editors on microsoft windows and macintosh rather than old unix editors like emacs so if you're looking for a very basic a very familiar style text editor uh, N edit ng might be your product you can check that out in the show notes we'll have a link for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com make sure to check it out uh one i didn't
3: get caller information but you're on the air uh hi um you talked about fedora earlier um i've actually been trying to uh i've been messing around with uh, i don't know if you're familiar with multi-seat mm-hmm. where you have like one uh computer and you can set up uh two stations so like a station being a monitor a keyboard and a mouse mm-hmm. and uh, essentially you can have multiple users taking advantage of the resources of one computer mm-hmm. um apparently fedora 26 had this as a feature but i'm trying to mess around with it i've not been able to get it to work at all i don't know if you have any guidance on
1: that um i don't i've not really played with it very much to be honest with you i'm i'm familiar with what it is i've seen a demo uh, past that i uh, i haven't really uh, had a chance to play with it i do however know somebody from red hat that is playing with it so what i'll do is i'll reach out to them and see if i can get them on the show and and get some more information we might even do a demo or a tutorial on it cool that
3: would be great yeah sure Awesome. Uh, 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 have you played with Fedora? Uh, also, oh yeah. Go ahead. Uh, it's a separate question, so yeah. Let you go, go for ahead. it. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I wanted to know what your uh, sort of stance is on um, passwords, uh, because um, another one of these articles on the Register going around about like uh, password expiration policies and how Microsoft have abandoned that now, mm-hmm. but uh, other places, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm on the side of like, you should just have strong passwords, right? Why would you tell people to reset their password every three or six months or whatever? Mm-hmm. Or I don't
0: know. But like my university,
3: for example, um, enforces that like all the students reset their passwords every six months. What's your stance on that? Uh, I,
1: I'll tell you what, it's, it's actually going to, it might shock a couple people. My thought on passwords is that we should get rid of passwords altogether. How's that for a crazy answer? the fido2 standard
3: okay what would you
1: replace them with i would replace them with the fido2 compliant key so the fido2 standard allows for you to use a hardware device and instead of logging in by typing in a password you plug something you have in and push a button to prove your presence to prove that you're actually sitting at the computer that it's not being remotely controlled and then maybe on top of that you secure it with like a four-digit pin or a very simplistic password but it's not Anything complex is nothing difficult to remember, and it doesn't require you never have to change it because the attack vector of somebody being able to actually possess that device, know what your password is before you have a chance to revoke it is and and they have to be physically there to touch it is almost impossible. Right. Like you'd notice if that device goes away. So long term, that's what I hope we wind up with in the interim. I am a huge advocate of things like Bitwarden which are password managers that allow you to generate a unique password for every site you visit. You can secure it with a two factor authentication device like a YubiKey, which coincidentally, if you buy the new one also will support FIDO two when that becomes a reality. Um, But that it's funny you bring up Microsoft as an example because Microsoft is the first organization to go completely passwordless. So if you have an office 365 subscription, or if you're using the office, the, the hosted office suite, um all of that you can log in with a fido2 compliant device rather than actually having to type a password
3: okay that's pretty cool pretty cool i could see that kind of maybe being added to like student cards or something mm-hmm.
1: like that maybe yeah absolutely any which way we get there is fine and i thank you very much cool. for the yeah i thank you very much for the call i i'm i'm fine however we arrive at this passwordless authentication i just think the concept of passwords are a thing of the past and you know that's true because every time I go to sign up for an account, it seems like the things that they know are important, they make you essentially involuntarily use two-factor by sending me an email to prove that I'm allowed to log into a device. And I just think that's, I just think we're, we're not acknowledging the fact that we've passed the time where a password alone is safe enough, and we can prove that with a story from Docker Hub, or ZDNet, about Docker Hub. Docker Hub, the official repository for Docker container images, announced this week a security breach late Friday night. Docker says that the hacker had access to the database for only a short time, but the data for approximately 190,000 users has been exposed. The company said that this number is only 5% of Docker Hub's entire user base. Now, right now, it's unclear if the hacker downloaded any of the user database from this Docker Hub server, but if he did, then he may have gained access to Docker Hub usernames, hashed passwords, uh, GitLab and Bitbucket tokens all used for auto-building Docker containers. So, besides the fact that this is another reminder to be using individual passwords for individual sites, the other question I have to ask is it time for Docker Hub to start or Docker uh, to start taking bug bounties more seriously and put some real money on these bugs? so that we can try to suss them out before it affects a user. There was a bug filed on GitHub, and this just struck me funny because I actually saw this when it was first filed, and then to revisit it this week, it it had me laughing. Quote, it would be awesome if Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows could be downloaded without having to log into the Docker store, not to make users jump through hoops. This was already previously possible, if I remember correctly. Now, you can imagine that a group of people that didn't really want to have to sign up for an account to begin with were forced to sign up for an account. They required people to enter a password and then <laughs> they were reckless with that data and it was compromised. That thread lit right back up this week, let me tell you. I was just with a friend the other day. We were, I don't remember. We were buying tickets for something online and the security on the site was a complete joke. Their web server's running Windows. It hadn't been updated. There's no HTTPS. I mean, it's just a joke. And he made an offhand comment. He says, yeah, I bet my data's safe right here if I enter in a password and I have to create an account. You can't buy this ticket without creating an account. Yeah, my phone number. Yeah, I totally need my phone number for me to buy a pair of tickets. And my home address. Yeah, I definitely need that to be able to buy a pair of tickets. I better create a user account because I'm going to go to this event so many times. You know, it was kind of ridiculous. Here is a, here's a, here's an Ask Noah hot tip. Don't take on user security unless you absolutely have to. First of all, your users are going to be ticked off if they have to jump through a bunch of hoops just to be able to get to your to your services, right? We do the exact opposite at speed Technologies. We jump through a bunch of hoops so that our users can simply just email tickets in rather than having to create an account on our ticket system. Part of that is I don't want to be responsible for user data. I mean, the other part of that is I don't want random people just creating accounts and submitting weird stuff. But a big part of that is I don't want somebody using the password they use on a bunch of other sites, and then all of a sudden our site gets hacked or something like that, and now all of a sudden we're responsible for that. And I want your user data. Send me your email. We can do it that way. Build. Th- th- I get it. There's a lot of temptation to collect user data. I get that that's a popular thing to do. I get that it's a profitable thing to do. But how about you build value into your service, build value into your site, build value into whatever it is you're selling. Users are going to come back. You don't have to worry about collecting their data. You don't have to worry about sending them in an email. The chat room is asking, spend $50 on what we're talking about, the YubiKey. If you're looking for an NFC or FIDO2 compliant device, check out the YubiKey. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. The version 5, I think, supports NFC, the uh, regular CCID function, which you can use for the uh, SSH authentication. And it also supports FIDO2, which at the moment you can only use with Microsoft or the YubiKey's test site but soon that will be available for other things. Containers are going to win. So this this isn't uh, the story about GitHub. Does it make me think any less of GitHub or Docker? Or, sorry, GitHub, excuse me. My brain is fried. Uh, does it make me think any less of Docker? No. Containers are going to win. Now, I'm not necessarily sure it's going to be Docker itself. Uh, it's interesting if you look, RHEL 8 is not going to ship with Docker. They're going to ship with Builda. They're going to they're gonna build OS, uh, an OCI Docker image. Uh, I think it's Scopio, which inspect, copy, and sign images, and then Podman, which will actually run and debug the image. But they're not going to ship Docker. So the tide may be turning a little bit, but one way or another, I still think containers are going to win. And at the end of the day, Docker Hub, just like any other site, is going to have some vulnerabilities, and you make yourself a big enough target, and eventually something bad happens. Hopefully you're using individual passwords. Feedback segment. Hey, Noah, thanks for taking my question. I've been exploring using an SSH tunnel to browse traffic lately. I use the GNOME SSH Tunnel Manager. It made me start thinking about the security of connecting to free SSH accounts online. Could an evil SSH servers infiltrate me if I connect to them? I know they can see everything I'm doing from a networking perspective due to the tunnel, but I was interested in knowing if they could, in fact, infect me. I've been testing with sshfree.com. I can always spin up a DO droplet, but have been trying to learn without paying. What are your thoughts? Keep up the great work. You're free to use this question on the show. Well, good because I just did. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it all—it depends on exactly how you're setting up your tunnels and what security looks like on both sides. But yeah, in theory, if you have a—if you have a tunnel set up and you've exchanged a, an SSH key pair, yeah, you could absolutely send data both ways. Um, I get this question a lot from people that are setting up VPNs and they're going to work from home, and they ask, well, can the organization see into my network because I have a connection established? And the answer there is, well, it depends on how the routing traffic is set up and it depends on how the the, the client is set up. Uh, we don't set it up so that traffic can get into your network. It it only flows one direction. We have no routing rules on our side, and then the, the way the client side is set up, it doesn't actually allow to pass traffic through Uh, To that device, it it just terminates there. But certainly I would not connect uh, any sort of tunnel or VPN software for that matter to an organization that I didn't uh, that I didn't know or or didn't trust. And if I did, I'd make sure to have some firewall rules to keep traffic uh, going where I didn't want it to go. If you haven't checked it out, make sure to visit AskNoahShow.com. Click on the videos link. There's a couple of people are asking, hey, where do I find your tutorials and interviews and stuff like that that you release? That's where they are. They're at AskNoahShow.com, and you click on the videos link. That will redirect you to our YouTube channel, not the YouTube channel that AskNoah was released on, but a separate one designed specifically for video content on Linux. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JT, our producer, Simon filling in every once in a while. I hope you all have a great week. We'll see you back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com.